0: Hi, I'm Susan Clark. And I'm Chris Marie Campbell. Welcome to the Beauty of Conflict podcast. Have you ever wanted to take some of what you've learned on the podcast to the next level? Well, check out our new step-by-step, easy-to-use team kit to get your team from avoiding conflict to discovering the beauty in conflict. To learn more, go to www.thriving.com
1: forward slash team kit. That's www.thriveinc.com forward slash T-E-A-M-K-I-T. Well, today we have two very special guests with us. I know these two people. We have Grace Michael and Jason Patton, who are both from the Robertson Center for Intercultural Leadership out of Berkeley. So I'm going to introduce you to, so our listeners have some background information and then we're going to get in because...
0: I think Chris Marie is actually a little nervous today. She's been a student with both of you <laughs> recently and, and I noticed she has a little flutter to her usual... <laughs> These neutral. are my teachers. Yes. <laughs> so, so just to, you know, just want to acknowledge that. And, I see think that's if it fits. True. <laughs>
1: Totally fits. <laughs> so Grace Michael is the Assistant Director and Intercultural Training Specialist for the Roberts and Center for Intercultural Leadership. That is a mouthful. It's too much to say, yeah. (laughs) Grace is an experienced facilitator and educator with a deep commitment to building a more inclusive, just, and peaceful world. Mm -hmm. Grace received her MA in Peace and Justice Studies and a Certificate in Peace and Global Education from the University of San Diego and a BA in International Relations from Claremont McKenna College welcome, Grace.
2: Thank you, Chris Marie and Susan. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and Jason Patton has a PhD. He's the director of the Robertson Center for Intercultural Leadership, CIL, has been involved in international and intercultural education for 30 years. Both yeah,
0: there was quite the list of various places oh my you've both been that we yeah. did not include, but
1: you yes. have extensive you can backgrounds. <laughs> so. the, you can read those in the transcript. Both as an organizational leader and as a consultant, coach, and trainer. Jason is fluent in Mandarin, which is pretty awesome. Jason has a BA in East Asian Studies from Harvard, an MA in the same field from Stanford, and an MA and PhD in Linguistics from UC Berkeley. You just like to cover all the, you know, big schools there, right, Jason? (laughs) (laughs) Welcome, Jason. We're excited to have both of you.
3: Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting us.
1: Now, I met Grace and Jason when I took the, I was certified in the inter- Inclusive Behaviors Inventory out of the Robertson Center at Berkeley. And it was a great program, very experiential learning. And Jason also has Montana Roots, so we had a connection there. And it was just a really well-run program. And I thought what I really liked is how you approach the topic of diversity, equity, and inclusion from a very broad international perspective. Mm -hmm. And it it just seems so grounded because you have been dealing with these diversity Mm -hmm. issues across the globe for so long. So, you know, do you want to share kind of your context and a little bit about the program or the Robertson Center? Either one.
3: Grace, do you want? Yeah.
2: Grace, Why don't we jump in and start by telling you a little bit more about CIL and how it began, because I think that provides some helpful context to understand the kind of unique way that we approach diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yeah. So our department, CIL, is actually part of International House or I-House at UC Berkeley. And I-House is a living and learning community that has been around for 90 years. It's kind of a iconic place on the UC Berkeley campus. And in uh, non-pandemic times, this year has been an exception, but students are coming back. We typically have over 600 people, students and scholars from over 70 countries that make International House their home while they are studying and researching at Berkeley. And so our center was born, you know, prior to my tenure there more than seven years ago as a place initially to support the leadership development of International House residents to help these people who have gone on to be like Nobel Prize laureates and global leaders to really be able to leverage their experience at International House into their global leadership and so our center was born as a kind of place of training and capacity building for residents and then it grew and expanded into a consulting firm that works with all kinds of clients both on the UC Berkeley campus with other departments as well as other people around the globe and we do these open enrollment and different certification programs which Chris Marie got to participate in to help mm-hmm. other trainers leaders facilitators etc bring this global DEI and intercultural lens into the work that they do. So that's how we were born. And so because of that, we bring this very kind of world global lens to everything we do, which is unique within what's happening in the world of diversity, equity, and inclusion right now in the US. And we have, I think, because of that, some interesting approaches that we can tell you more about.
1: I just really want to underscore, Grace, yeah, the history that's involved in the Intercultural Center and also, you know, the like the type of the quality of human that goes through there and goes on to influence the world. And I think sometimes in American business, we can be so myopic about the dollar and succeeding and having the larger lens, that global lens, I think really brings in humanity. That's just the sense I had when I was with my peers in that training that I went through. And it's, it just really gave me more inspiration about the impact. Mm-hmm. Jason, yeah, do you want to chime in? Yeah,
3: thank you. And I think Grace kind of summarized the history really, really well. One quick note, just on the, on the tool itself, the Inclusive Behaviors Inventory, just so the, so your listeners know, that's not a CIL thing. That's a, a Perian Global instrument that they invented. And then we partnered up with them to create the certification program. So there, yeah, there's a couple of different places we could go. One is sharing a little bit more about how the global and U.S. side of things kind of work together, and then another piece is, is this very broad question about motivation and the you know dollars versus you know doing well versus doing good mm-hmm. that kind of thing. I don't know which should be more more helpful at this point. It, is there either way you would like to the conversation to go right now?
0: I am all for going to the second, the latter part of that. Like, because I think that is actually something that is a significant question right now. You know. Mm-hmm.
3: All right. Well, then I'll just share a little bit from my own my own experience and motivations when it comes to doing this work. Because I've spent a lot of time at universities, <laughs> as you mentioned, are detailing my education. And there's, I think, from a from a cultural perspective, like in academia, it's really common to kind of you know wag our fingers or look down our noses at organizations for trying to make money and there's this sort of discomfort with the money making side of you know the material benefits to organizations for engaging in this work and i think one of the things that i've continually learned and relearned over the years is that it really is not we can come to this with a mindset of abundance and say look it really truly is both sides of the coin here now speaking for myself My motivations have always been kind of on the human side of the equation. I think we share that at CIL and all the people who've worked for CIL and with CIL, that that's really what brings us to this work is we desperately want to have workplaces and organizations where people feel like they belong, where they can develop their potential and express their potential. And they feel welcomed and they feel a part of things. And that's really what drives us and motivates us. And whether that's folks from different countries coming together or it's folks from different identity groups coming together. That that's kind of what unites us in why we do this work. Mm-hmm. And it's a wonderful thing that that also creates well-functioning organizations that can make more money doing what it is that they do. So it's the I guess it's a means versus an end mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, if the work is a means to the end of making money, well, yeah, I'm not really sure. If the ultimate end is well-being of humans and the making of money can serve that, fantastic. Mm-hmm. So maybe maybe I'll stop there for a moment and see how that lands. Yeah.
0: Well, it, it's so interesting that we're, when we're doing this interview, because I don't know exactly when it will air, but we also have one of the biggest events going on globally right now, the Olympics, which happens to be, on the one hand, designed to be about bringing teams and people from all the cultures together. It's also a business. Mm -hmm. And it's also about, and there's no question, at least from our lens and how it gets handled and addressed, that the commercialization of it, the questions going into this Olympics, should it have even happened with everything going on? And yet all those things you're talking about there are these moments in the Olympics that there's no question that this is a powerful demonstration of people coming together in a way that brings kind of the best and the worst of this very question <laughs> foregrounds. And we see how it plays out, like watching Simone Belil finally bring mental health issues as this is a real issue to the equation and be so exceptional in it, but also be really, you know, even her teammates said, criticized from the outside, but supported on the inside. I mean, there's a whole little, I don't know whether you guys study that, but just a whole makeup of what's happening at the Olympics that seems very related to the what you're talking about and how to pull that off. And that's always the challenge, money versus people, Absolutely. results versus people, you know? And Simone had a quote today, we are not just entertainers, we're humans. Mm-hmm. And I think that was a kind of a beautiful statement to be made. I don't know if anyone else could have said it and pulled it off the way she did because yeah. she has that influence because of who she is. Yeah. Not everybody gets that chance. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. You
3: know. so I appreciate you saying that, Susan. And I'm, I'm actually, I'm going to venture just a little bit into something that I'm not, I'm going to limit myself here because this is not an area of expertise for me. But just this morning, I was reflecting on this a little bit about, I know that as a fan, I'm a sports fan. I confess to being a sports fan. And, and then I think about, in such a sports, it's like, stardom generally, this this whole phenomenon of stardom. I know that I license myself to dehumanize them because mm. they're so wealthy and they're so famous and everybody wants money and fame and they have what everybody wants. So we can go ahead and dehumanize them and that's fine. And I, I think that Simone Biles calling attention to mental health issues and before her, Naomi Osaka, I think yep. really led the way in, in the world of tennis as well. Yes. is mm-hmm. really causing me to take another look at that. Like, that's really nasty. I don't, I don't like that. And I think that this is a real opportunity for us to grow as a society and also globally, in terms of just not allowing ourselves to dehumanize, no matter how rich and famous people are. So if that's outside my area of expertise, so I'm gonna stop there, but I but I really appreciate you highlighting kind of the human equation there.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, I think it, it comes up in business as well though, because mm-hmm. we can dehumanize people in the business sector in the exact same way. Yes. You know, like, okay, these are big money-making people, that's all they are, and we do the same, same thing. Or you know, um, the you're
1: just a cog in the wheel. Yeah, the, yes, kind of yeah. the I'm just a cog. In the, I can dehumanize myself.
2: Yeah, yeah. Grace, mm-hmm. do you want to chime in? Yeah, I mean, I love this conversation, and I love the fact that you're highlighting kind of the paradox of the Olympics as both this uniting force and amazing opportunity for kind of intercultural learning. Because you know, it's such a beautiful thing. You watch the opening ceremony, you see like I watched it, and I I had tears in my eyes as they were like the Japanese you know, performers were building this amazing creation and seeing people kind of being invited into that experience of Japanese culture. So on the one hand, there's all this beauty, there's this unity. And then there's kind of this, you know, dark side of things, which is maybe the exploitation of the athletes and Mm -hmm. the case of Simone Biles in particular, you know, she's somebody who kind of experienced all kinds of horrendous things with the Larry Nassar case back in the day, she's been through so much, you know, So all that's to say that I see her and Naomi Osaka and these other athletes as really demonstrating courageous leadership in the face of kind of resisting the status quo and treating things as, you know, we're not going to be in service of just the bottom line. We're not going to be in service of just performing and or being a cog in the machine. And ultimately, I think that relates so much to the work that we do at CIL and that we're training people to do as inclusion leaders in whatever space, whatever industry they're working in. So, you know, going back to this program that that Chris Marie took and this inclusive behaviors inventory, you know, one of the (laughs) there's there's two categories that we look at within that this relates to for me, we talk about how inclusion helps get better business results, Mm-hmm. so that's the area of getting results mm-hmm. but we also talk about becoming a champion for inclusion mm-hmm. and becoming the person who in your organization is going to you know push the status quo and actually try to shift the culture of the company mm-hmm. to one that is a place where people actually feel welcome where people feel like they belong where people feel like they're valued and can be themselves and if we're only doing the you know getting results like oh, it's good to have a diverse team here. Oh, you know, it's good to make sure that we are celebrating Pride Month, and that we have something going on for disability awareness, then it becomes very performative. Yeah, um, yeah. But if we are actually, you know, helping people to lead in a way that pushes the status quo, and that challenges the company to shift its culture. That's for me, why I'm in this work. And why kind of, I admire what has been happening in the Olympics. And and those two things are both happening right now at the same time at the global and domestic level in terms of kind of where companies are at as they reckon with inclusion and the history of racism and oppression in this country. and globally. So it's all very connected. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: Yeah, I just have to chime in because you're making me think when I was at the Olympics, I was a rower in the 1988 Olympics in Seoul. And that I heard (laughs) about that. And I have to tell you, my experience at the when we all and they don't get to do this at this Olympics, but we were all in the Olympic Village living together. So we'd go to dinner and you'd sit next to the West German Mm -hmm. bikers because this is before the wall fell down and sit next to the gymnast from another country and all these different people. And it felt like it was actually a similar feeling I felt when I lived as a little kid on a military base, which was like, oh, you're next door, you're part of the pack. It was automatic inclusion. And that was the same yeah. at the Olympic Village because it didn't matter if somebody had won a lot of medals or anything, everybody had this automatic respect and inclusion. And it felt so, so powerful. And I know for me, I didn't stand up to, it wasn't sexual abuse, but just abusive leadership, uh, coaching. And just, I felt like I was a cog in the wheel. I have Mm -hmm. to do that. And it took me 10 years after the Olympics to start to deal with my own mental Mm -hmm. health issues and the angst because of that high pressure performance. Like I am an object and I have to perform. I'm nothing if I don't. That's really what I thought. And I think Michael Phelps Mm -hmm. did a, a Netflix special, The Weight of Gold, which is that Mental pressure we put on ourselves when we're in those positions, seeing ourselves. So that's that dehumanizing, Jason. You were talking about really doing mm-hmm. that to myself, but in a system that perpetuates mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I just had to add my <laughs> own <laughs> Olympic experience in yeah, both those, the mental issue, but also Absolutely. the utopia. How, <laughs> how and how mu- how powerful that sense of belonging is, and you know when you have that in a company people will run through brick walls because they care so much about the organization, but it does take work to break down those, you know, we've worked in organizations where the culture is very contemptuous and not even racist, more like smartest, like you're dumb. So you're, Mm -hmm. you're dismissed versus maybe that person just has a different point of view, but I automatically think they're an idiot and I just discount them.
0: Yeah.
2: Right. It's absolutely, you know, an ongoing practice I think we have those utopia moments, and they motivate us. That happens at International House. You know, we have these Sunday suppers and different special events throughout the year, where you'll see people from all the different countries. They're you know performing. There are different you know cultural dances and other kinds of things, and you feel that sense of wow, we are all one common humanity. And in those moments, it feels kind of like a utopia. But that's, you know, a moment and a snapshot in time. And then it comes to the day-to-day life of like a roommate from, you know, Japan and a roommate from Germany who have completely different communication styles. One is totally direct. One's totally indirect. They're not listening to each other or hearing each other. And they're judging each other's communication styles as being passive aggressive or rude or wrong. And, you know, instead of seeing it as you know these are just different it's you know you don't know how to communicate you're kind of a horrible person it becomes very much a personality attack and so those are the kinds of things that we're working with people in just their day-to-day interactions you know taking that into the the business environment and the workplace the same dynamics come up all the time so how do we help people to recognize those differences and instead of seeing them as character flaws see them as cultural and see them as something that can be bridged if we're willing to adapt our behavior to be more inclusive.
0: That's very in line with the work that we do in a slightly different ways because so often in the work we're doing, we don't necessarily have multi... We do sometimes have malter multicultural groups in the business. But we also, that same thing can happen just in a, well, I go back to a family, you know, like my background is in family therapy and you can take people from the same, take my sisters and I, (laughs) we, if you were to sit and talk to us, you would think we had not grown up in the same household with the same situation (laughs) at all. And we've done a lot of work Mm -hmm. over, we've had a, you know, we were, Fractured for 10 or 15 years because of some differences. But at the same time, trying to find a way back to not just make even something that may not seem like it's not because we're, we come from different backgrounds. We came from the same backgrounds, but we had it put together so differently and we had different strengths. Like I was dyslexic. I did something very different. That to Mm -hmm. my sisters was not okay, you know, but, and even on a team, sometimes somebody who has a really, you know, all the degrees in the world and smart background and somebody else who is really, you know, learned how to put things together. Well, those two don't always necessarily communicate well. They can try to help people see, wait a second, don't let the differences get in the way of figuring out that together you are going to be better if you can get beyond what can seem like the tension, because that's actually a great spot of possibility. We think in our in our beauty of comic work, we say that tension is actually creative
1: potential energy. If you can actually hang in and be be willing to be vulnerable, and then also curious in this other person, which I think, Grace, that's what you are talking about with the Japanese and German
2: roommates. (laughs) Absolutely, yes, it's so much about it's learning how to leverage that tension as an opportunity. And we talk about that a lot as well. And you know, the research shows that diverse teams. That are well-managed and that have effective skills outperform homogenous teams. Sometimes you hear, oh, diverse teams outperform homogenous teams. That's not true. (laughs) It's diverse teams that know how to leverage the diversity that outperform. Otherwise, you might as well try to get people who are just like you and just have a bunch of clones because then you're going to outperform the diverse team that doesn't figure out how to make that tension a point of creative opportunity.
1: I love it. Mm-hmm. You, you know, that's that's the whole premise of our beauty and conflict <laughs> book, Grace, right there. Yes. That's terrific. Mm-hmm.
2: Jason, do you have anything you yes. want to us- say? <laughs> well, we definitely have our like-minded in that. Yes.
3: <laughs> no, totally. Yeah. I'm just sort of my mind's going to a whole bunch of different places here. I think hmm. this whole idea of hanging in there, I think is really powerful and extremely important piece of this conversation because, and this goes to Grace's point as well, is like the utopia moments are wonderful and they're really important because they help keep us dialed into mm-hmm. what's possible. And I mean, if I didn't think a, a whole lot right. better world was possible, I wouldn't be doing this work, <laughs> right? Yeah. You, have, you mm-hmm. have to believe in some future state. I don't know how far in the future, you know, <laughs> hundreds of years thousands of years I don't know but it's a really long time and it goes very very far beyond my own lifetime (laughs) that that much I'm clear about right and it's not not that there's ever an end state either as well because we got our metaphors can can mislead us into thinking there's some kind of a finish line there's never a finish line to this work because it's always going to be work because of how we're wired as human beings so the utopia moments are key and there's always going to be a (laughs) ton of muck for all of us to work and, and that's, I think we can get ourselves into a little bit of a trap in a number of different ways with regards to this, these questions, because, you know, there's the standard, okay, so we witnessed this horrific murder of George Floyd in May of 2020. And then we were reminded about what happened with Breonna Taylor and Freddie Gray and Eric Garner and so many others. And there was this, you know, business leaders around the world. And mm-hmm. I think, especially in the United States, all of a sudden we got to do something. We've got to This thing and we have to handle it it's a business problem and we have to handle it and missing kind of the the the, the larger set of challenges that we have here which is that if you want to take white supremacy as Mm -hmm. an example it lives Mm -hmm. inside of each and every one of us to moment and it shows up in different ways but it's there it is it's not like it's not like we can just sort of like a surgeon like surgically cut it out Mm -hmm. it's baked into us as as a society and as a planet really i mean white supremacy is a is a global phenomenon and that, that points to a lot of different things, but I want to come back to this looking inside of each of us looking inside of ourselves and trying to come to terms with our idea of ourselves as good people. Because on, on some level, we, we kind of need to believe that we're motivated by good and that we have good intentions and that there's good reasons for the choices that we make and the actions that we take. Reconciling that with the nastiness that is that lives inside of each of us as well, the part of us mm-hmm. that, that could kill another person the part of us that needs to put ourselves above other people. And I kind of, like, that's the part of this work that the most challenging and also the most rewarding for me personally. And where, where possible, I like to focus our attention because because I really think that, that, first of all, if we don't do that, if each of us isn't engaged in that, then, then whatever lofty goals we're trying to accomplish are going to be either impossible or significantly more challenging to accomplish. But also just because... I just feel like we, we ha- there's this kind of dual nature to humanity that philosophers and theologians and, and everybody has been pointing to for millennia. And we, we've got to deal with all aspects of our beautifully and horribly complex humanity. Um, we are, we are
0: to- totally with you on that. We are actually big believers that until people recognize their own potential for violence and realize that we all participate in it, there's no... I mean, yes, right now we're, as a white person, I can go that direction, but from the time we all have it within us mm-hmm. to be violent in every way, shape, or form. I mean, some people, the work is to actually see that they're, they're not violent, but most, for most of us, the thing we're mm-hmm. facing is our shadow. Our shadow includes the side that doesn't recognize we're really not good people. Sometimes we're nasty. Sometimes we're horrible. Sometimes we do things, and until we can actually talk about those things in some sort of pathway, you know, I I just think, you know, I did did a lot of work up in the northern communities up in Canada with a, a lot of the indigenous people. And I was often, you know, brought in with some friends of mine, but I was the only person who was not... Indigenous. But what I loved was there. they had a lot of processes that are now considered to be restorative justice. But the way that they would go about it sometimes when they would do it at their best was so profound. To see people in the same circle sitting there dealing with each other with some pretty horrific things that had been done. And yeah. I think we're still not very good at that. Yeah, and no. we want it to be over. We want to find the fault in somebody and get rid of, cut out the the black the dark holes or whatever and assume now it's now it's good but yeah. it, that I agree with you it really is me looking inside and seeing how am I that same how do I have that potential and that's actually the life changing moment and the great. sustainable how am I good and how am I bad? How am I evil? How am I you know and to own both.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So Got it.
0: Grace, do yeah. you have
1: anything that you wanna say?
2: I so appreciate you sharing that about your work, Susan, and it's very much aligned with what brought me into this work and into this field. You know, you kind of heard in my bio, I have this background in studying peace, which some people scoff at, <laughs> you know, and they think peace is some kind of an ideal and very much like, I apologize for the train going by in the background. <laughs> it will just be part of our show. <laughs> um, but for me, you know, being a peacemaker is about being able to actually work through a process of healing and forgiveness mm-hmm. and reconciliation which it sounds like these communities that you've worked with you know that they're actually making that a part of their practice and so that's initially what got me into my career was I wanted to work in contexts where there was violence and violent conflict and war and helped to you know negotiate peace settlements, mm-hmm. so on and so forth. And I traveled and worked in several conflict-affected countries, including Peru and Myanmar, which is the country oh. of my mom's heritage, and did several community-based initiatives around helping people to build the skills for inter- intercultural dialogue and for educating the young people to be peace builders, etc. And then I kind of realized while I was abroad in Myanmar, that's actually when Trump was elected. <laughs> and I saw, wow, look at what's happening in my own country. Mm. Look at the polarization, look at the breakdown, and just the extreme views on either side of the spectrum that are kind of causing our democracy to fall apart. Mm-hmm. So I need to be working on these issues in my own cultural context, in my own country and not trying to go fix other places. And Mm -hmm. so I I came back to the US and that's when I started this role at CIL. And, you know, we work in a very very different level in terms of helping people in their professional development and in day-to-day practices for inclusion, but I still consider it to be peace building work. Mm -hmm. And I still consider it to be a way that we are trying to bring about, you know, a world ultimately... That's going to work for everyone and not just for some because we're teaching people skills to actually listen to one another, value one another, and not, you know, write people off, not cancel each other, and actually try to, like we've already said, work through the conflicts and hear the different perspectives because I do believe that that's necessary for the survival of this country and the world, given kind of the global challenges that we're facing right now. So yeah, it's, I think, a healing journey that we need to be, I see that we are on and that we need to engage in even more, because there's just so much, you know,
0: deep division right now. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think you touched on a, I think, an important point, like you brought, you know, you were talking about you're wanting that peace. And it's kind of like, I think when you talk peace, you're actually, it reminds me, I have friends who often talk about, you know, the great Beatles song, all you need is love. And I'm kind of like, yeah, it's a great word. Mm-hmm. But if you actually think love always means you feel good and that it's the utopia, mm-hmm. it's that's not the meaning of love. It's kind of like, that's actually not the meaning of peace either. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of like when we were thinking of our book, we called it the beauty of conflict because it's like, we didn't call it the joy or the comfort or the ease. Beauty has depth. So does right. peace has to have that depth. Right. It has to have the contrast. It has to have the yeah. dissonance and the willingness for someone. I mean, like right now, I think we're facing the fact that people, some, many people have good reasons to be enraged, angry, but you know, all sorts of things. And it's not like, you know, get yeah. over it. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, you have to be willing to sit and hear, totally. hear that without making that person wrong. And if yes. I'm over here sitting here feeling intense shame, I need to be able to sit in that and not try to get out of it by saying, you know, yeah. but I, I'm doing better now. I, I gave a million dollars you know, I did. And until we can sit in those hard feelings, that I think is where we would find peace, but it's not a comfortable peace. It's a, it's a place. And that is, is very hard to help people get to and hold that space. But I you know, I appreciate, I love that you realize I've, I got to come home because we are in the throes of it right now in our polarized country. You know? So we appreciate you working <laughs> at home. Yes.
3: <laughs> <You>
0: know, <so. laughs>
1: now, if yeah. any, we're coming to closure, but we don't have to close. If there's anything else you want to say, or if you also want to share about what people can, because you folks made yourselves available during the pandemic to us, not just people at that could come and stay at Intercultural Robertson Center I-House, but if there's other things you want to say about what you're offering and how people can work with you, this would be a great time. Yes.
2: Sure. I think one of the more exciting things that we got to do this year was launch our first train mm-hmm. the trainer program. So that was our global DEI practitioner institute is what we called it and that was an opportunity for people to basically learn to teach and facilitate the same kind of content that we've been doing for the past number of years because we had been told by many people you know how do you do what you do and you all need to replicate yourselves so we decided to create this training institute so if folks are interested in in becoming you know trainers of this work then they should reach out to us at cil at berkeley.edu and again, they can participate in our other certification programs, like what Chris Marie participated in. But on a kind of just day to day practical level, I, I just really encourage people to practice this discomfort. <laughs> we call it <laughs> bravery. You know, when you see a polarizing conversation coming up, and you, you know, start to notice in yourself, what is where's is my kind of discomfort coming from? And what is that about? And, and being able to sit with that and actually work through it instead of reacting to it. And I think we just, this is work for everyone in our society to be doing right now. So, you know, I hope you can stay connected with us and we, we share thought leadership pieces as well in our social media. And we can continue to build a community of people who are trying to be conscious about being inclusive.
1: I love that, Grace. Exactly. I think uh, Brenny Brown says, you know, when she was, who has the vulnerability and the shame research From the University of Houston, but she was was talking about when she was talking to business leaders, they're like, well, can you not talk about vulnerability? Can you talk about courage? And she's like, dude, courage, anytime you're courageous or brave, you're going to be vulnerable. So being willing to step into that vulnerability, which none of us really want to do, but it is that act of saying, hey, I'm uncomfortable with what's happening right now. Yeah. That's great, Grace. Jason, any closing comments?
3: Yeah. And this is funny because this really has nothing to do with all the fancy degrees that are on my resume but there's a song that's been in my head all morning long and i just want to i want to share a little bit of it because it it's just really it just captures something so beautiful it's so one of my favorite musicians of all time his name is michael fronty and he's from the bay area originally and he had a, he had a group called spearhead and and it's just i don't know it's, it's fun it's danceable and really really deep and profound and his last album came out in 2020 and it's called Work hard and be nice. That's the name of the album. And this song is the title track. It's just so fascinating that this is the song that's in my head right now as we're talking about this and vulnerability because this I'm not gonna do it justice. I'm gonna recite this one line from the song. It says, I, I don't want nobody to know that I've got a soul with the great big hole in the middle of it, and I'm just trying to fill a little of it. Aww. And it's it's just it just captures this profound sense of how we're all broken yes <laughs> and we have to deal with that mm-hmm. we have to i don't know about embrace it <laughs> you know that i don't mean you know, the whole bunch of verbs we could pick to go with that but at least at the very least notice that when and how we're trying to push it away and wish it away and i think so much of the being able to sit with discomfort is just sitting with our own pain mm-hmm. and our own brokenness Mm-hmm. So as far as like sort of day to day stuff goes, I and mean, again, I'm not I'm not a psychotherapist, I'm not a professional healer, right? It's it, or any of that stuff. But I think there's so much power in that, and I recommend that you go and listen to to that entire album and and specifically that song. Oh,
1: uh, we will. <laughs> yes. Susan is a huge huh. music fan. Yeah. So that's yeah. gonna <laughs> be
0: the next thing we yeah. do today. is gonna be listening to that
1: <laughs> exactly. And I do think both of you are so in line with the work that we do, and business leaders so much want to or humans in general want to bounce off our pain and bounce out of it. And what we coach and what Mm -hmm. you two are both saying is, hey, actually be interested and curious about what is going on for you rather than just reacting from it. And Mm -hmm. that discomfort is informative and it would help us, it helps us heal that, that little hole a little
0: bit, you know, fill that hole a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I prefer the notion that, you know, the idea, I love that idea of broken. There's another great song. It's from the Ugly Dolls, you know, not really, you know, (laughs) profound music choices here, but I'm broken and I'm beautiful. And the Mm -hmm. idea that, you know, broken open is actually the only way to heal. So it's not really that you're broken. You're only broken when you leave yourself in that place of doing it alone. Once you realize that then there's a path out. So, you know, you can listen to the ugly dolls and I'll listen to the other, you know, know, both, both work.
1: Now, we could, we could probably talk to you for hours. Yeah. We've so enjoyed having <laughs> you both here. And I can't recommend your training. I know it's appearing global does the tools, but the way that you go about training is very experiential, which is in line with our work. It really helps people integrate the material in a really powerful way and develop relationships, yeah. which is the web that supports us taking this out further. So I just really want to applaud the work that you do and encourage people to check it out. And we'll put the links in the show notes. And thank you, Grace and Jason, for spending time with us today.
3: Yeah, a True joy right. and a privilege. Thank you so much. Thank for you both
1: us. so
2: much. It's been a pleasure to, to share this space yeah. with you all.
0: Thanks for joining us. We hope you found today's episode valuable. We know you're busy and we want to make it easy for you to understand how conflict may be showing up in a way that's impacting your team negatively. We recorded the first three chapters of our book for you to listen to for free.
1: Get your free audio sample at thriveinc.com forward slash free sample. That's T-H-R-I-V-E-I-N-C dot com forward slash F-R-E-E-S-A-M-P-L-E.